0: Hi, everyone. So today's guest is actually going to be a presenter at the 2019 Afterlife Awareness Conference. I'd like to introduce you to Mitch Metzner. He is a hospice midwife, environmental epidemiologist, and minister, and is offering a Saturday workshop on men in grief, featuring experiential processes and hands-on exercises to Explore the unique ways in which Men experience and express the pain of Loss. He's also going to be Presenting a breakout session on grief Gratitude and hope at the end of life And private sessions by Appointment at the Afterlife Awareness Conference in Salt Lake City, Utah And by the time this uh, Show comes out, our early bird Special for the live stream will be over But we are going to give those Of you who would like to still purchase The live stream a discount We're going to give 10% off, but you have to listen. Into the very end to get that code. So, let me tell you a little bit more about Mitch and some of the work that he's also been doing in the world outside of this Afterlife Awareness Conference in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, as I said before, he is a hospice midwife and he completed his postdoctoral studies in public health and received a PhD degree in human services from Capella University with epidemi- oh, let's see if I could pronounce this one. <laughs> Epidemiological dissertation research conducted at the University of California San Diego School of Medicine. Did I get that right, Mitch? Yes. All right.
1: Epidemiological.
0: <laughs> All right. So, he has had decades of experience as a behavioral psychology and clinical laboratory research scientist and public health educator working on various centers for disease control and prevention funded projects. He began home hospice work during the AIDS epidemic in 1982 and gained inpatient medical hospice experience beginning with the death of his partner, Chuck Lilly III, in 1994. Later serving as a volunteer and trainer for hospice volunteers and professionals with the San Diego Veterans Medical Center, West Los Angeles Veterans Medical Center, and Anam Cara, a residential social model hospice project he co-founded with his late husband, Gabrielle Gelbart, Gelbart, Gabrielle Gelbart.
1: Gabriel Gelbart.
0: Gabriel Gelbart. All right. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks for your help there in your bio. You're so, um, wow. So yeah, you have done a lot. We're really looking forward <laughs> to meeting you in person at the Afterlife Awareness Conference, and I'm really excited to also bring in a component of this conversation about men and grief. We've had a couple of other guests on that have targeted some of their own research and work about women, and I'm always like, hey, what about the men? So <laughs> I'm pretty excited to. Also, learn a little bit more about men and grieving, and um, you know losses that they experience, and how it might be different. So, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: Yeah. So, where should we begin here? Um, let's 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 have you take our listeners just through a little bit of what I covered in your bio of how you came into this work.
1: Like many people in hospice work, I feel it was kind of by accident, um, life events. Uh, fortuitous and, you know, kind of magical at the same time. I uh, planned on working originally in gerontology and then found myself working in the AIDS epidemic at the very beginning, kind of unexpectedly, and that took me directly into hospice work. At that time, an AIDS diagnosis was universally uh, a terminal diagnosis, and people typically died within two years. And the deaths were... uh, Horrid and gruesome, and um, it was a pretty raw edge frontline experience. And at the end of that period, after about 12 years of that work, uh, I had a partner who also died of the disease, and he was the first person I knew who died in a hospice. I really didn't know much about the institution of hospice, and he happened to die in a residential facility that only had hospice beds, um, one of the AIDS hospices at the time. And uh, meeting the healthcare workers there, uh, I'd been working in acute care for some years. And I remember distinctly that when I met the caregivers at the hospice where Chuck was, I felt like I was meeting the first healthcare workers I'd ever met in my life. And it was jolting and surprising and profound. And their degree of compassion, attention to his needs as a whole being rather than someone who had an ailing organ or was largely identified by a disease process, it really transformed my experience. And I I felt like I needed to enter that field later in life when I had time and finished school and um, dedicate more time to that, which I, I did do. I did a lot of home hospice work also during the AIDS epidemic, but... Most of the time I wasn't even aware, that's what I was doing. Um, But these days I train and teach volunteers and professionals who work in hospice. And it's been um, great consciousness raising for me. It's transformed the way I live my daily life and having lost two partners, um, the grief experience and bereavement and support I've received from other people um, has also been very transformative.
0: Yeah. And, and I wanted to ask too about just the description um, that you call yourself a hospice midwife. Um, Now I'm familiar with like nurses who are in hospice and things of that sort. Can you just define exactly what the hospice midwife does? And is it different than um, what the nurses do in hospice? And do you play a different role?
1: Yes, it's a a really different role. Um, And it's a, a lot like coaching or mentoring. I sort of help uh, like a guide to facilitate the process. Um, I do very little direct patient care um, unless it's necessary between you know, medical visits or something. I might be involved dosing medications or you know, turning a patient quite frequently. I spend a lot of time with a patient usually when they're entering the, the very difficult last couple weeks or month of their disease process. I may be um, available on the sidelines uh, counseling with them and meeting with them and their family over the weeks and months leading up to that phase. But I often care for people who are uh, receiving either care from a mobile medical hospice team in their home or they're in a nursing home. And I visit and spend time with them and usually have the uh, opportunity to spend a lot more time than the paid staff do. And one of the unique things about um, the role i do and anyone doing this kind of work as a volunteer is i don't show up with an agenda i don't need to poke them or take the temperature or um, complete a procedure the nature of the visit is kind of a buddhist-like bearing witness and being present for their process mm-hmm. i may help sort of direct and nudge and cajole gently um, based on what I know about their journey and typically hold up what I call a menu every day or every encounter with them for where they might be on their map of life and um, try to do that very compassionately and sensitively and and help them embrace the stages of their dying process more consciously than they might do otherwise.
0: Great. Thank you for that um, explanation there. And so can we go into a little bit about your process with grief and how that is also, um, you know, moving you to want to talk about men and grief at the Afterlife Awareness Conference? And maybe you can, you know, just explain how that process may or may not be different from the way that women grieve. But, you know, through your own experience of loss, um, you know, how maybe you move through that to help some of our our male listeners, who could be grieving right now too, um, and for them to just maybe, you know, just feel validated in some ways that they have been processing their own grief.
1: Yeah, Yeah. thanks. Men and women both grieve, of course, and um, we're different enough and socialized, largely socialized in different ways that I think influence that process a lot. Um, maybe internally, we're more similar than what socialization does for us. And I, I find that in general, um, And I'm going to speak in a lot of generalities right now, because it's grief is a unique journey and unique to each person. But I do think there are some things that can be generalized or a little stereotypical about the process for men and women that are different, unique, and can be very challenging. For example, um, women largely grieve in community. They come together often, not every woman, but many do. And men tend to isolate more. And I can bear witness to the fact that both of the times I lost partners, I was very, very fortunate to benefit from the process women engage in, and that the women who were grieving the same loss with me were able to be supportive and present with me when I would have uh, you know, crawled under a rock or into a cave. I may not have been able to talk and uh, verbalize as much as women could uh, with their experience and their process, but I found that uh, the women were very intuitive and I was very fortunate to have, um, particularly the second time when Gabriel died, I was surrounded by a lot of women with uh, death and end of life experience and they really did a formidable and amazing job supporting me and being present and uh, not confusing my process. Um, Men have been socialized in many parts of the world with a great deal of shame around showing sensitivity or vulnerability particularly when we're children um, crying in public or hurting your knee on a playground. There's often some ridicule around that. And men often, uh, our process of grief is informed by that. And sadly, it it sometimes causes us to store, pack grief away and leave it unattended. It's a very difficult healing process to do uh, individually. I think it's very important that one have a support system, you know, at least a person or a professional or a loved one, a deep, intimate friend uh, for sharing some of the journey. And then, as we all know, the, the people that we lean on in our support system uh, go back to their lives sooner than we do. Uh, when we lose a loved one close to us, One of the things that I've always found remarkable each time is we don't just lose the person or uh, I mean their presence, you know, their physical companionship. It's much, much bigger than that. The whole map of our life sort of vanishes, it vaporizes in that moment. Everything we expected we'd be doing the rest of that day, particularly if it's a sudden death, as it was with Gabriel, who had a heart attack. Uh, Chuck died of AIDS, but uh, his process was a little slow. But he was also one of the few or the only person I knew to die of that disease who looked extremely healthy when he died. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of in, um, while well, I was trying to support his family to uh, get on board with the fact that he was actually dying, once he did die, I realized that I, I was doing a bit of denial myself because it was hard to see illness in him. He looked fine to me. Um so I think the isolating and not talking and um that men often deal with grief in ways that are not only unhelpful but destructive. It's um we see this often in families where a couple loses a child. It's you know 90% of the time approximately um there's a divorce. And that's in large part due to the poor skill set that we in the West have for dealing with. Grief and loss, which is universal, natural, ordinary, and part of everyone's life. Some people a great deal more than others, but that we navigate it so poorly, and um, that the loss is often compounded by destroying our social network, our, our loved ones around us, or perhaps our jobs, maybe abusing a substance for self medicating. And there are a lot of ways men can spiral into a A deep hole of destruction when grieving.
0: Now, would you say that even through the the grief process, right, when we're, when the initial shock is there, and, you know, I think the grieving process, anytime you lose a loved one, it it kind of, you know, starts there, but never ends in a sense. I mean, grief doesn't really end. (laughs) Um, You know, grief, I think it transforms in different ways, you know, what, but, you know, you'll, you're always going to miss your husbands, love them, think about them, you have eternal memories. So it doesn't just end there because the physical body ends. So how have you, um, you know, as a male too, have moved forward after their death, getting through, say your own emotional journey to the point where, you know, you're You're functioning, you know, in life. Clearly, you're doing great work. But is there anything else that you do for yourself, um, you know, years after your partners have died that help uh, your grieving process to this day?
1: Yes, I think there's some very important uh, keys to the process that have worked for me. Uh, One, I'm also not wired um, to be... um, I don't want this to sound offensive to anyone, but I don't experience victimhood very commonly in my life. I've had a lot of adversity and challenges and struggles. And I've been fortunate enough to have people um, periodically teach and coach me and help me through those processes that um, I was able to be more tempered by some of my experiences than people with less resources often have. I find that the tempering can be um, a gift in a person's life and allow for measures of gratitude and compassion that aren't present otherwise, or typically aren't present. And I've found that gratitude is a has been for me a very important key in unlocking grief. And what I mean by that is that... Um, We don't experience one feeling only in our lifetime, you know, for five or six years, just one feeling. While we may be grieving and bereaved, there are moments where we also experience beauty or they might be brief in the beginning. They might not carry the weight um, that they do when our heart's not heavy. But I can remember even when Chuck died, I was... um, essentially completely distraught the moment he died but ironically he had a a hospice room with a very very high ceiling in a private room um, and it had gigantic windows you know 16 feet tall or something and it was a very overcast day in Virginia and the moment he died the sun pierced through the clouds and flooded the room with light Mm -hmm. and I can Honestly, recall that in my moment of great despair, while I was actually wailing, I was, um, I could see the profundity in that beauty and the mystery and magic in it without understanding what it was. Of course, I thought he had something to do with it, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do believe that our, our loved ones have ways and means of reaching out to us or. Uh, around us and that we may not be as in tune when our grief is dense and heavy and over time it may get easier Um, there are other examples but I think primarily for me being able to find the gratitude the the fact that Chuck didn't suffer um, that he his body was uh, riddled internally with disease but He wasn't experiencing many of the things that so many people did experience with AIDS, and he he didn't experience pain associated with it. He was surrounded by a loving family and dear friends in in a great space. He lived a very, very short life that was, he died at 25. Um, So there were. Uh, there was a blending of gratitude and uh, shock and awe and disappointment, but it was all happening at the same time. And I was able to um, tease out the gratitude over time. I was not very skillful at the beginning. And, And the same thing when Gabriel died, I was a complete mess for some time. And I remember the first five months in particular were agonizing and then, I had an uh, experience to explore gratitude in very deeply about five months after he died and remembered the beauty of the relationship and, and something that I had been um, aware of the whole time after he died, it had been such a magical and profound and the most significant relationship of my life at that time. His death was very sudden But I was aware of the dilemma uh, of not knowing how to feel um, bitter, frustrated, angry, um, given how beautiful and amazing and loving the relationship had been, how perfect the day had been before he died. And I was able to to, uh, sort that out and find things that, presented a a, sort of a conflict for me. The relationship had been too beautiful for me to translate it into something of bitterness and shutting down and closing myself off from others. Um, My heart did shut down for a a good while, but in some ways, but um, I I remember I, I knew I needed to resolve that. I wasn't going to allow myself to remain hurt and bitter and angry as a result of so much beauty in my life.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's, it's really sitting in that gratitude for it, as opposed to getting angry and saying, I want more, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, and,
1: and we, we often, the frustration or grief that we experience is often for what the more that we didn't have.
0: Mm-hmm. exactly. Like
1: in the case with Gabe, I, I thought um, I, I wanted decades more, but would I have done all of it had I been allowed just one day or one hour of the relationship and the profundity of, uh, I was the only one with him when he died. Um, the gift of that opportunity to share that with someone, the same thing happened with Chuck. I was also holding him when he died. And, um, as traumatic as that is in some ways, it's so profound. <laughs> um, it's hard to imagine not being alchemically altered, um, letting a loved one go and, and sort of encouraging and helping them across, sharing that moment. So as bitter and uh, traumatizing in, in some ways as it was, I, I wouldn't do it any other way. I wouldn't have wanted a phone call or... Um, for either of them to have been alone or with someone who didn't know them deeply. Um, So I felt really blessed or fortunate. Um, And it's that paradox of sorting out the gifts, the profundity, the blessings um, inside the trauma and the agony, and not clinging to just one of those aspects.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I just had a, a session yesterday. Um, it was, uh, it was, I do some energy work as well outside of this and had, um, a gentleman who had lost his dad and, you know, sometimes spirits make their selves presence to me. And I felt the presence of his dad in the room. And he was talking about the birth, his birthday. And, um, I come to find out that the dad passed away on my client's birthday. And my client was, um, we weren't even talking about his dad or focused on this because this has been years and years ago, but he was coming in presenting with, um, you know, wanting to just kind of release some things that could be blocking him and that are contributing to his anxiety. And then all of a sudden we're having this conversation and, you know, his dad is in the room and talking about the birthday and the dad died on his birthday. And he said, you know, that's still something I carry a lot of resentment about. And, you know, I, he said I said to myself, if I ever see my dad again, I'm going to let him know that that pretty much pissed me off (laughs) because he really, he really wanted his dad, you know, to be around for his kids. And he, he said, I felt, I feel gypped, you know, kind of what we were just talking about of, you know, you could have that, that moment of that gratitude, or you can also have some of that anger that they were taken away. And for that more for you to have more, you know? So, you know, so we just have this discussion, we go in, we do some energy work. And then, you know, the father's spirit is pretty active in the energy work. And he basically said for me to give him this message, he said, I'm not going to apologize for the way that I died. (laughs) He said, um, you know, he believed strongly in birthdays and, you know, his death was also his rebirth. And he was really excited that he could share that rebirth on his son's birthday. But his message was. I can do better work and more work in protecting you and my grandkids than I could have in the physical body. And during this energy session, uh, his father shows me a car crash and I said, does that make any sense to you? And sure enough, after his dad had passed away, um, you know, I think it might've been like a year or two later, he and his wife, he, he was in Vermont. He said, I have no idea how we survived. It was almost like the truck went through our car. There was an oncoming truck on a windy road in Vermont and they survived. There was a car accident, but like they really should have been dead. And so, you know, it's kind of moments like that too, when you're speaking of gratitude um, in working with that client, I felt like some of that resentment was able to release, and there was maybe more gratitude for the fact that his father was in spirit because he knew exactly what his dad meant when his dad was telling me that story of, I, I can do better work up here <laughs> than I can in the physical. and, you know, then, kind of pointing out the example of the car crash where we both interpreted it as if the father had a play in that in the spirit world to make sure that he was safe, that his son was safe. And and you kind of, you know, I kind of saw that expression come over my client's face of of gratitude is really the best word and uh, more, more love and acceptance rather than anger about it.
1: Yes. I think to for me, something similar. One of the fortunate gifts, I think of, of loving someone and them being on the other side is ironically, I, I feel that we still have quite a connection to our loved ones and that they care and uh, are concerned about our well being and try to assist us the rest of our lifetime to get together while we're here in our physical water bag. But um, I feel like they do it from a place of unconditional love finally, where we're not judged. There's no way to annoy them or piss them off or disappoint them. Right. And it's a profoundly um, you know, non-physical relationship, but it's much richer in some ways. And also in my experience, Gabe happened to die on Father's Day and I happen to be a father and been estranged from my son periodically, um, much of his life. And, we uh, are kind of hit and miss on trying to work that out. And so it's always a um, loaded day for me. And I've lived most of my adulthood as a gay male. So gay men seldom observe Father's Day. And very few of my friends, you know, recognize Father's Day for me or acknowledge it. But Gabe did. And um, he's the first person who ever gave me a Father's Day card. Um, but he died on that day and I thought, like your client, um, wow, I already have a lot of energy on this day that's not positive energy. How am I not gonna screw this up for the rest of my life that this calendar event is permanently uh, laden with grief? And I just decided you know, that I, I wouldn't do that. I already had enough uh, angst about that holiday. And very quickly thereafter, ironically, um, my son reached out. He saw something on Facebook, someone had posted for me, and he uh, discovered that Gabe had died and reached out in the most compassionate way he's ever, and the only time he's actually been that com- you know, compassionate at all, essentially, Um was a direct result of discovering that Gabe had died on Father's Day, this day that my son and I both um, have some angst about. So my son was compelled and moved to be very compassionate. And um, again, I was you know struggling with that paradox. I felt like I got an aspect of my son as a gift, as a direct result from Gabe, having died on that day potent and a
0: significant date. Yeah, that's a perfect example, exactly. Yeah. And and I'm sure, I mean, can't assume, do we really have proof? We don't know. But it also makes you wonder, you know, not only with him passing on that day, if there wasn't some work in the spirit world that he did to either touch your son's heart or, you know, because like when you describe that to hear, it was most compassionate that he had ever, you know, had been to you and to reach out. I, I I have to vote for that, you know. He was out there helping you, and helping your son in some way. To be like, come on, come on, kid. You know.
1: Yeah. So I, I lost my husband, sort of gained my son back, and mm. very very strange. And I'm I'm a scientist by training. I do have a spiritual life and spent some years in seminary, but my experience of the afterlife was really just a belief with very little um, awareness of it, and just hope and um, wonder if there was an afterlife. But as I've gotten older, I've had um, sometimes rare experiences with those that have passed on and loved ones that have made it vividly clear to me that um, there is an afterlife, that love continues after death, these people we love in our our life are part of our existence before and after we're here, and that they're deeply, deeply, deeply involved in our day-to-day, even the mundane minutiae of our daily lives. I don't understand how any of it works, um, what it looks like on the other side. I have very little understanding of that. But it gives me a great deal of peace um, about why this existence is impactful and meaningful uh sort of a spiritual being having a physical experience for some time here and then returning to a spiritual life and uh, i think it's very comforting for me to have that paradigm and i would not have had that couldn't have intellectually created that it's been a result of the experiences i've had um and the direct experience that i've had with the dying that have really made it possible for me to have a degree of comfort um, and a perspective about death that is so much like birth that it's not laden with all of the torture and suffering that many people are experiencing. It doesn't mean that um, I don't experience grief or suffering or pain when a loved one dies. There's no way to skip that. Um, but it does give me a perspective that helps with my healing and I can see a light at the end of the tunnel and uh, the deeper the relationship, um, the more intimate and close the person is to my heart, the more complicated it can become. And if it's someone that I'm working with that I, I don't know well or a family's uh, asked me to help them, I can be much more objective and um, transformed by the experience but i don't necessarily have to go through a, a great deal of trauma if it's right essentially a stranger that i'm coaching I, I still experience it very deeply but deeply but i i don't feel that it uh lingers with me like a permanent wound or um permanent aspect of my life as you alluded to mm-hmm. i think grief stays with us it's something we don't try to get over or move beyond. We learn to live with it and live with the gifts of it and the the way it alters and tempers us.
0: Yeah, and you know, as we're talking about that too, it just it makes me. Um... I just find it interesting too that even the word that we use to describe it grief right we kind of like put it out there like it is this thing but it as you said earlier it's it's so much a part of life as is love as is happiness as is frustration as is our job and our work i mean it's all inevitable yet we sometimes kind of hold it out here as something we're dealing with but there are so many Uh, Aside from the death of a loved one, I mean, people throughout their lives uh, are grieving. We're grieving throughout our lives constantly.
1: Yes, it's sad that in the West, we've really sort of set this apart as if it's optional, something to avoid. We don't even have good structures in our culture. I I remember when Chuck died, um, it was in the 90s. So... Uh, LGBT rights had not advanced very much. We weren't able to legally marry. And although I worked, uh, I, I was a project director in an AIDS program uh, for the American Red Cross, I was only allowed uh, legally one day of bereavement. <laughs> and I, I just, I found it so ironic that given the work I was doing, I was working at a humanitarian organization it's like, are you serious? I mean, really, really? Um, and they, my supervisor, I think, gave me three days ultimately. And uh, that was helpful. But when Gabriel died, I was also working for an LGBT uh, service type research agency. And uh, they were much more generous. Gabe and I were legally married. And I think I had two weeks of bereavement. Um, <laughs> Or leave time to uh, really soak in the experience and try to become functional a little bit again before returning to work. Yeah. But even even those structures, you know, they they bear witness to how detached we are from this very natural, ordinary experience. That much of human existence, we were very acquainted with the cycles of life and planting crops and animals dying and litters of puppies being born. And now that we are largely separated from the earth and uh, the animal kingdom as much, and we largely live in cities and all of our food comes in a cellophane wrapped or cardboard box, we're not as aware of the cycles of life. And it it helps, that detachment helps complicate grieving for us.
0: Yeah, I've always thought the three-day grief thing was like such a joke. I mean, two weeks is definitely more generous because there's just, I mean, on top of just the emotional self, there's sometimes for people, there's a lot of work to be done afterwards. Um, you know, there's just like a lot of processing and a lot of energy that goes into you know, experiencing it all. And, you know, one day that's absurd three days. I think that's absurd too. Okay. Come back in three days and, you know, get back to work, just get busy, you know, get your mind off of it. It's to me, it's just like, it's just not very humane. It does speak to where we lack, I would say in the way that we take care um, of ourselves and our relationship with death in this Western culture.
1: Yes. And I think it's also true that, that for many people, um, there are a lot of people that have not experienced a really deep loss uh, of a loved one close to their heart. You know, they may have lost an uncle or a grandparent or perhaps a co-worker. Um, but it's not as common universally that every one of your co-workers or that your supervisor has lost a spouse or a child. Um, so the the human capacity for understanding this, I think, is also limited by the lack of experience of these deep losses and and I did find it helpful both times to seek a community of men that had lost spouses um, because I felt my experience was too unique and my friends that had not lost a spouse or been present holding a loved one who died uh, often had a different experience having um, been informed over the telephone or the nature of their relationship was such that um, their their experience was too removed from my own to um, relate to it and feel recognized.
0: Right. And... You know, could we also talk about the other aspect, too? I mean, I mean, now, you know, marriage is slowly becoming legal throughout, um, you know, for gay couples and stuff like that. But what about the grieving when you weren't even acknowledged as a family member? If if your loved one, you know, your partner was dying or, you know, were you even allowed access because you weren't considered a part of the family? Or what about couples who may not be out or they're really not able to share the grief that their partner, you know, has died because, of all of that that has come throughout the years with homosexuality.
1: Yeah, that was certainly true with uh, the experience of Chuck's death. His family was uh, a very devout uh, fundamentalist Christian group that I'd grown up with as a child. So I was acquainted with uh, the philosophy and practice and traditions around it. and his parents were a little caught off guard. They, they knew he was ill, but were not expecting him to die so suddenly. So for the first two or three days after his death, I was sort of running the show front and center. And they were immobilized with their loss and grief. And um, then, Sadly, I, I was moved out of the picture, but one of the cool aspects of that that I've seen again and again was um, his mother just embodied a kind of resilience and strength and, and rose like that steel magnolia uh, analogy. It was amazing to watch this woman transform into, you know, from um, deep, deep paralyzed suffering to um, powerhouse. And I don't think men do that as well as women do often. And um, so that was an interesting experience also in it. But women also have a very similar experience, heterosexual women and many other analogies too. But one that I encounter sometimes is women who lose a child before birth. So have either a stillbirth or a miscarriage, Mm -hmm. particularly a miscarriage. It's very common in our culture to discount that as not having lost a child. And the women experiencing that loss often grieve in deep isolation because we don't have structures or um, an awareness of how intimate and significant that kind of loss is. And and they're often denied their grief that, well, you you didn't really have a child, You, you lost a uh, neonate or something you know um it's just tragic to me how much that experience how common a miscarriage is ignored um and how alone women are often uh struggling with that kind of
0: loss yes yeah. thank you for bringing that up i think that's important for people to hear as well yeah yeah. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. I know we're starting to come to an end here, but you know, one of the things that we were talking about earlier about the grief and gratitude, um, you are going to be a part of the live stream for the afterlife awareness conference. So you're kind of kicking it off on, uh, the beginning of Friday on June 7th, you have your 9.00 AM talk on grief and gratitude. So for those of you who have been listening all the way through, I'm going to give you the code for 10% off of the live stream. So you can tune in and get Mitch. Is, um presentation on grief and gratitude and that code is going to be podcast 10 so for 10 percent off you can head on over to path productions.com you can click on the afterlife awareness conference and when you make your purchase be sure to put in that coupon code first apply the coupon code and then go ahead and put your information in so i'm looking forward to sitting in on that as well to see that now that we've had a chance to talk and we didn't really get into it too much but I'd like you to just make a little bit of a mention because on your website here, you have a little section that says planetary and other hospice work, which kind of comes into, I would say your other life, um, of doing, uh, the work, um, you know, with uh, your you've researched a number of different diseases, including HIV, hepatitis C, substance abuse, um, pandemic influenza, and how that has also been a part of your life in working with death as well. So can we just touch on that briefly before we um, bring this conversation to an end?
1: Yes, and thank you. So um, not long ago, I reached sort of a crossroads with my research work um, in public health. And part of it was the transformation that I experienced uh, with my grief over losing Gabe. That um, the roadmap to my life was kind of rewritten, and what had been important to me, I saw through a different lens. And I became a bit frustrated with the the lack of impact in the work that I'd been doing for decades, and overwhelmed by the gravity of the climate. Collapse crisis, and felt that anything else besides hospice work and addressing the suffering and loss and grief of the transformation that's going on in the entire ecosystem and the ecocide that we're perpetuating uh, with fossil fuels compelled me to um, shift my focus to sort of an epidemiological model for climate change and. To explore the ways that we can find gratitude and hope and resiliency in the face of existential um, loss and risks as we're experiencing currently with climate collapse. I'm working on a book about it, I, I speak about it occasionally, and my experience in epidemiology and attending the dying deeply influences the model and all of the perspectives I bring to this topic.
0: Wonderful. I think we'd love to have you back on after you have that book out, because that would be a really interesting topic to have. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Mitch, it has been a pleasure. We look forward to meeting you in person at the Afterlife Awareness Conference. Um, that's going to be in June, Salt Lake City, Utah. I've never been to Utah before, so I'm really excited. I hope I get to see some parts of it while we're out there. Um, and you know, thank you so much for just sharing your, your beautiful personal stories. Um, I think that that makes a conversation like this just so much more impactful when, you know, we're really just giving our stories, our real life stories of what we have been through and how we've come out the other end and how these moments in our life can also bring us to our purpose in life and what we're supposed to be doing. So it was really great to have you on as a guest on the path 11 podcast. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you, April. Look forward to seeing you in Salt Lake.
0: Thanks for listening to the Path 11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there that is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four-day four-day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out-of-body experiences and life-changing experiences that I was able to bring back uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends that was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, I'd like you to head on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today, and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people. Uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today.